the words of our text come from the twelfth division of the book of Job in the fifth verse. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. Do you have a clue what that means in 16th century English? Hidden there in the language of the 16th century King James English, those words don't have a lot of meaning for us today. Well, let's look at it in a modern speech translation. Let's look at it in the New Century Version. Those who are comfortable don't care that others have trouble. They think it's right that those people should have troubles. Okay. But even better is Dr. Moffat's translation. Men at ease sneer at the unfortunate. When a man falters, there are blows for him. So what is that ancient man Job saying? He says that those who are comfortable have contempt for the downtrodden. Moffat says that for the man that's down, there are blows for him. In our vernacular of the 21st century, we would say that that is kicking the underdog. We talk about it in our day and time as kicking a man when he's down. In saying this, Job is not simply voicing his own attitude. You know, it's often true that the most critical things that we find in others are the things that we are guilty of ourselves. Have you ever heard some sharp-tongued critic say, Well, I'll tell you what, I'd never do such a thing as that. And oftentimes the person that says that is more guilty than the one that they're criticizing. But Job wasn't that kind of a man. By nature, Job was a generous man. And Job was a kindly man. He was not, therefore, criticizing others for faults that were glaring in his own life. If you recall the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us there of an encounter between two men. Men that had some serious eye problems. Men that were in desperate need of an ophthalmologist. One of those men had such a minor affliction that it amounted to practically nothing. He simply had a little speck of sawdust in his eye, and one single tear could have washed it away. But the plight of the other man, oh, it was much more distressing and much more serious. He had a whole plank in his eye. Can you imagine just how irritating and how blinding that would have been? But these two men met. And the man with the plank... He called attention to the sawdust in the eye of his fellow man. Now let me go over this again. It was not the habit of kicking the underdog that brought Job to this conclusion that when a man is down, there are blows for him. Job suffered his way to that conclusion. You remember, Job has played two opposite roles in the Bible. 
At one time, Job had been a great success. He was a man that had seven sons, three daughters, a great household of servants, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, one of the greatest, wealthiest men of all the East. But all the treasures that had at one time made Job's life glamorous were gone. Job's wealth had turned to want. His health had given way to gruesome sickness. He was covered in nasty, filthy boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. Those bright days of victory had turned into long nights of dark defeat. But probably the sharpest contrast of all with Job was the attitude of Job's friends. Those who had yesterday been his most comforting and loyal friends were now his tormentors. Those friends and comforters that turned into tormentors were sure that the calamities Job was suffering, all the problems that Job was having in his life were his own fault. And so, being sure that Job was somehow to blame for all the bad things that happened in his life, all they had for their faltering friends was verbal blows. His wife even got in on the act. She said, Job, do you still retain your integrity? Job, it's not worth it. Give it up, Job. Curse God and die. Job told her she talked like the foolish women talk. So Job's ugly conviction that when a man is down, there are blows for him, was born out of his own experience. But praise be to God, this is not universal. Though it's not unique, it is not universal. Countless thousands of people have had this harsh conclusion contradicted in their own experience. There's a reason for that. Kindness is a flower that can bloom in the very harshest of climates. Kindness is a flower that's so strong that no frost can ever entirely kill it. And you know, sometimes you find that flower of kindness blooming in the most unlikely places. Do you remember the story over in the Old Testament of a pathetic little family that was making their way to a place called Moab? There was a father and a mother and two sons. They were pious Jews, and they weren't going to live among those pagans at Moab by choice. They were being driven to that foreign land by starvation. Can you imagine the thoughts that went through their minds? On the way to this foreign land, their pious Jews, how are those pagans in Moab going to receive us? That question probably tortured the mind of every member of that little family on the way. I'm certain it was especially tormenting to the wife and the mother, Naomi. We're not told exactly how they were received. But we... No, they must have been met with kindness beyond their fondest hopes. Because they came to feel at home among those pagans. And they had little desire to actually return to their native land. 
Naomi lost her sons and her husband to that pagan foreign land. And so she was banished from her adopted home by sorrows like she had been banished from the native land by hunger. But she was treated kindly. When I think of kindness, I think of an incident that happened about 40, 50 years ago. It's been a while. I was a young man when it happened. There was a place in Marshall called Pender's Newsstand. And it was a gathering spot. It was right across the street from one of the banks. It was right in the center of downtown. had a row of chairs, shoeshine chairs over on one side. Four different places you could go and get your shoeshine. You could go and buy the paper. You could buy the Dallas Morning News, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Shreveport Journal, Dallas Times, Herald, Houston Chronicle, Houston Post. That tells you it's been a long time ago, doesn't it? But you could buy all those newspapers, climb up in one of those chairs, sit there and for... Fifty cents, get your shoes shine, read the paper, and then walk across the street to Fry Hodge Drug and get a cup of coffee. Well, I was in there one Saturday afternoon in late December. It was, temperature was in the mid-twenties. It was raining and it was turning to sleet and it was cold. It was about three o'clock. I was in there to see what kind of magazine or newspaper I could get to take and read. A friend of mine came in. He and I started talking. A man a little older than I was. A bit older than I was. But a good friend of mine. And while we're standing there talking, this elderly black man comes in. He was probably in his 60s if he was a day. And he's on crutches because he only has one leg. And he makes his way up to the counter, and he asks the lady at the counter, he said, Ma'am, would you mind letting me use the phone so I can call the cab? She says, I can't let you use the telephone. It's not a public phone. You'll have to find a pay phone somewhere. He said, Ma'am, would you mind calling a cab for me? She said, I can't be calling cabs for people. My friend and I are standing there watching this. Our friend looks over there and he says, Where do you live? He called the name of the street down in the western part of town. He said, Well, I'm fixing to leave. I've got to go kind of that direction. Why don't you just get in the car and go with me? Oh, I couldn't do that. He said, No, it's no trouble at all. Come on, get in the car. I'll carry you home. So he took him out, put him in his car. And he took him home in that sleeting weather when that woman behind the counter wouldn't call the man a taxi cab. Well, to me, that was a beautifully kind and a beautifully moving moment. It thrilled my heart that a friend that I had would do something like that. It also made my face turn hot and red because... He thought to offer the man a ride before I did. By the way, just as an aside to that story, the friend that I was talking to happened to be a sitting United States congressman who was home for Christmas vacation. Giving a man a ride that could do absolutely nothing for him. But it was a fellow traveler along the road of life 
who needed a hand up. Like I said, Job's experience is not universal. But Job's experience is not unique either. How often have we seen this kind of thing in the history of nations dealing with nations? How often does this kind of thing of someone's down and there's blows for them, how often does this thing of kicking the underdog, so to speak, how often does it happen in our relations with one another? I'll tell you another little story. This very dear elderly lady, and she was elderly, came into my office one day. It was a woman that was married at 14 and had a child at 15, had raised children through the Depression. She had a very limited amount of formal education. I think she had maybe gotten through the third or maybe the fourth grade. I'm not sure. She had a very homespun, folksy, backwoodsy way of expressing things and saying things. She didn't always get her grammatical tenses correct, and she didn't always get her pronouns exactly right. And she was sitting there talking to me, and she says, you know, she said, it just makes me sad because, and she called someone's name. Sometimes makes fun of the way that I talk and the way I say things. And I said, well, I'm sorry. She said, and she sometimes makes fun of me in front of my grandchildren. And then they make fun of me. And tears came down her face. As she told me how bad that hurt her feelings. I thought about it then and I think of it now. And I can't help but remember. It is a needless unkindness. And a needless cruelty. How often are we guilty of that? How often am I guilty of needless unkindness? How often am I guilty of needless cruelty? What's behind this with folks? What's behind this ugly tendency of folks to kick the underdog when the man is down, there are blows for him? Maybe it's our worship of success and our corresponding contempt for failure. All through the ages of history, we've shouted for the victor and we've scorned the loser. And there's nothing inherently wrong in this, but quite often we overestimate success. We often shout for someone who might get elected, regardless of the kind of person they are or how they might have even gotten elected. You see, here's the thing. In the mind of some folks... There is just no substitute for outward success. When Jesus was hanging there on the cross, He was suspended by the nails, and there was scorn for Him. They reviled Him. They came by and they said things. And probably the most hurtful thing that anybody said was, they looked, well, He saved others. I bet He can't save Himself. Just like life was in that far off yesterday, folks. There are still people in our world that cannot forgive failure. 
whatever its cause might be. And there are those who worship success who cannot help but look on failure with contempt. This idea of kicking the underdog, it sometimes seems the most, the easiest way to handle an unwelcome situation. In every community, in every group of people, there are folks that have failed. There are folks that, for a large segment of society, they're just beyond hope. I'll give you an example. Four nights a week, the local chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous meets right here in our building, in our fellowship hall. Well, for some folks, that kind of failure is just an unforgivable failure. But those people need help. And they need help at all costs. But how many times have you seen people pass by them and say, well, it's their own fault they're that way. They don't have anybody to blame but themselves. That's folks' way of shrugging off any responsibility to help. You know why? Because it's easier to kick the underdog than it is to help the underdog. That's actually the main reason they meet in our building. They started meeting in our building about ten years ago or so. And we were having some work done. And one of the men who was doing some of the work, I was talking to him, and he got a call on his cell phone. He took the call, and he talked for a good while, and he, I could tell by what he was saying that he was very disturbed. And he got off the phone, he looked at me and said, Brother Tim, I'm sorry about that. He said, I had to take that call. I, he said, uh, I'm trying to find a place for our Alcoholics Anonymous chapter to meet. He said, we can't meet where we've been meeting any longer. And he said, we need a place to meet. And everybody wants just a lot more money in rent than we can afford to pay. I said, well, what kind of place are you looking for? He said, just someplace we can have a meeting. I said, well, do you have a, a problem meeting in a church building? He said, no. He said, but... We've already approached two churches and asked them if we could use one of their meeting rooms. And they said they didn't want our kind of people hanging around. And I looked at him and I said, well, it seems to me that, as you put it, your kind of people are the kind of people my Jesus came for. And so they started meeting here and they've been meeting here ever since. What did they receive? They received blows. Folks in those kind of conditions don't need blows. They need encouragement. And they need help. But some folks like to kick the underdog. Because that's the way they can show they're the top dog. We convince ourselves that if we can magnify someone else's failure, we can further emphasize our own success. I have an idea over in Luke 18 when that Pharisee and that publican went to the temple to pray. And that Pharisee's 
over there and he says, God, I, I thank Thee that I'm not like other men who are unjust and extortioners and adulterers. I, I pay tithes of everything I have. I fast twice a week. And, and that publican's over there and he won't look up. He says, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have an idea that Pharisee got quite a kick out of it. I have an idea that Pharisee went home and said, You should have seen that publican this morning. He was the most pathetic creature I ever saw in my life. It was just almost comical to watch him. I have an idea the Pharisee got quite a kick out of that publican. But Jesus said that that publican went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Why, Lord? Everyone that exalted himself shall be humbled. He that humbleth himself, Jesus said, shall be exalted. The elder son. In Luke chapter 15, oh, he was, he was a good boy. He was thrilled by the beauty and the magnificence of his own life. And he was appalled by the deplorable creature his younger brother had become. We kick the underdog. And we do it because we have a contempt for failure. Also, it's easier to kick the underdog than it is to help. And it also ministers to our own ego. But folks, that's a detestable sin. And it's something we've got to overcome. How? Centuries ago, a brilliant, earnest minister was sent to a very difficult congregation. It was a congregation in a concentration camp outside the city of Babylon. And it was a congregation that was made up of people that had suffered. They had lost their wealth. And some had no doubt lost their health. And many of them had lost their loved ones. And their plight was nothing short of desperate. And before that minister preached a single sermon to those needy people, with the hand of the Lord on him, he tells us he chose the course to sit where they sat. That's in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 15. God's man, Ezekiel, took his place among those he was seeking to serve. And he looked at life through their eyes. I remember, I read a story about a little boy one time, a newsboy. And I remember the days of the newsboy. In fact, I remember the Marshall News Messenger, when I was working there, we had a young boy that came in every afternoon, picked up 20 papers, and he walked a walking route downtown delivering his papers. And he was getting 20 cents a paper, and he got to keep a dime of it. But I remember the days of those newsboys. And what it seems is, in this particular little story, there was a farmer sitting on a front porch one summer evening. And the newspaper boy came by on his bicycle to deliver the paper. And there was a sign on the porch that said puppies for sale. The little newsboy got off of his bike and walked up to the farmer sitting on the porch. And he said to the farmer, he said, How much do you want for the pups, mister? He said, $25, son. Well, the little boy's face dropped. It might as well have said a million dollars to him. He said, Well, sir, could I just at least see them anyway? So the farmer whistled, and around the corner of the house bounded a mother dog, followed by four little cute puppies yipping and yapping and wagging their tails. And then he's looking at them, and another puppy comes around the corner. 
straggling behind, dragging a leg. The little boy says, Mister, what's the matter with that puppy? He said, Well, son, that puppy's crippled. We took that puppy to the vet. We had her x-rayed. and That pup doesn't have a hip joint, and that leg's never going to be right on that pup. To the farmer's amazement, the little boy reached into his collection bag. He pulled out 50 cents, two quarters. And he handed it to the farmer, and he said, Mister, I want to buy that pup. I'll pay you 50 cents now and I'll pay you 50 cents a week till I pay for that puck. I promise, I honest, I will. Farmer said, but son, you, you don't understand. That puppy's never going to be able to run. That puppy's never going to be able to jump. That puppy's never going to be able to hunt. That puppy's going to be crippled forever. Why would you want a useless puppy like that? Boy reached down and pulled up his pants leg. And as he pulled up his pants leg, a heavy metal brace and a mangled, twisted leg, he said, Mister, that puppy's going to need somebody that understands him to help him in life. Listen to me. Jesus Christ never kicks the underdog. Remember what the writer of the Hebrew letter said about him in Hebrews 4 and verse 15? He was tempted in all points like as we are and yet was without sin. Think of those underdogs that came to Jesus. Think about that woman that came to Jesus at Jacob's well. She came in the middle of the day because she didn't want to suffer the scorn of the other women. She'd been married five times and was living with a man that wasn't her husband. Jesus told her about living water and she forgot all about being there to get water and she went to the city to tell people she'd met the Master. Or that woman that morning that was brought to Jesus, he's sitting there in the streets and they bring this woman to him and they fling her down at his feet. Her hair is no doubt all gnarled, her, her face is dirty and streaked with tears, her clothes are torn. And those self-righteous Pharisees said, Teacher, we caught this woman in adultery in the very act. Moses said in the law, she needs to be stoned. What are you going to say? There's been a lot of things about that story that have always troubled me. I'd sure like to know how they caught that woman in adultery and she's the only one that got brought to Jesus. I've never quite figured that one out. I have an idea one of those gray-bearded Pharisees had slipped some guy a bag of money and said, Thanks, Levi, I appreciate you helping us catch her. Now we're going to trap that Jewish, that rabbi from Nazareth. But whatever the case, Jesus was too smart for him. He was too smart for those Pharisees. They had tried to get into a battle of wits with Jesus and they'd brought knives to a gunfight. Jesus looked at them and He said, He wrote on the ground. I don't know what He wrote, but I like to think that maybe He got in front of each one of them and He just looked into their hearts like Jesus could do. And He just wrote down what their particular sin was. But He said, I'll tell you what. 
Whichever one of you guys is without sin, you throw the first stone. You can hear the thud. One by one, those stones hit the pavement. And Jesus looked at that woman and said, Where are, they? Where are your accusers? Does no man condemn you? No man, Lord. He said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. There were Zacchaeus and Matthew, publicans, tax collectors. There were the blind, the lame, the lepers, the outcasts, the dregs of society. They came to Jesus. And Jesus opened His arms and He took them in. Among those failures were sinners like me. And before you get too smug, there were sinners like you too. And Jesus has a great welcome for all of us. And Jesus teaches us to lift up the fallen. Jesus teaches us to lift up the underdog and not have blows for them. And when we follow Jesus and we follow His way, our text will read differently. It won't say when a man falters there are blows for him. It will read when a man falters, there is one ready to restore him in a spirit of meekness. But for us to live like that, Jesus has to be Lord and Master of our lives. And if He is not Lord and Master at all of all of our life, He's not Lord and Master at all in our life. We've got to make Him Lord of our lives. By coming to Him in simple trusting faith, repenting of everything that's sin in our lives, confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism as He's commanded us to do. And then we've got to live His kind of life. I don't know the need of your life this morning. If you've never made Jesus Lord and Master of your life, I'd, I'd beg you to do that before you leave this building. If you've made Him Lord of your life once upon a time, but haven't lived His kind of life, and you need to come back home and let us pray with you and for you. Whatever your need might be, if we can help you make Jesus Lord of your life, we invite you to come as we stand in the office.